I've tried to push myself as a dowser going past the what I call the mainstay the ley lines energy lines and, and, and all of that but I've tried to push myself to try and figure out what it actually is we are dowsing what does it mean to be a dowser and what is dowsing Hi there, I'm Graham Gardner, and you're listening to Adventures in Dowsing, episode number 44 from the British Society of Dowsers. As I record this, it's just over a month since our 2014 conference at Keele University. Uh, This is a new venue for us this year, but the conference facilities were much better uh, with everything contained within the one building. And for the first time, we had the ability to video the main talks and hopefully DVDs of those will soon be available from the BSD shop. And one of our guest speakers uh, was Dr. John Ward, who is part Egyptologist, part archaeologist, part historian, part adventurer, and part dowser. He is a very colourful character, and in one of his Facebook pictures, he looks nothing less than an Indiana Jones wielding a pair of Hamish Miller dowsing rods. So I was determined I was going to get him to come to conference and give us a talk, and it took me some years to persuade him to come over uh, and get his timeline to coincide with the conference dates. But finally, we managed to make it happen this year, and he proved to be a very engaging personality. I caught up with John during the Saturday night party, uh, where I managed to persuade him to come outside and talk to me about his work in Egypt. Okay, so uh, we're talking today with Dr. John Ward, uh, Egyptologist, uh, archaeologist, adventurer, dowser. I like that. <laughs> uh, John, great pleasure to have this opportunity to uh, speak with you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Right? It's Thank taken you. me uh, several years to get you to come over to this conference. Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad we finally made it on the uh, uh, the weekend when I'm resigning as president. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether I should take that as a compliment or not, actually. <laughs> uh, actually, standing down. I'm not resigning. I'm standing down uh, after my service. Um, so I'm fascinated to hear your story on how you came to be uh, what, doing what you're doing in Egypt. <laughs> Do you know what? Everybody's been asking me that question yeah. over the past couple of days. And, you know, it's, it's one of those questions where I can give you the whole spiel and we're going to be here for hours, um, or I can give you the, the diluted version. And, but the diluted version is one of those that really cuts at the core of everybody, and that is that I literally followed my dreams. Now, that's not an easy thing to do, especially in today's environment. Uh, we have our mortgages, we have commitments to work, we have commitments to our families, and we have expectations that are put upon us by our families and so forth to strive within our own careers, with children and so forth. Um, and I did all that at an early age, and I don't mind admitting that. Um, I, I thought, I felt at the time that I had achieved I'd have gone as far as I could within the social ladder, within my own environment. Um, and I was left wanting. I had the Range Rover, I had the Audi, I had the cars, I had the holidays, played golf at the weekends, part of the PCC at the church, uh, even ran for Conservative councillor for Herefordshire. Um, and it wasn't enough. There was something missing. There was a hole. And with... The, with my career, that enabled me to, thankfully, take extra holidays. And I was always taking holidays to Egypt. And from there, my passion for history and archaeology grew. And it came to the point where I decided that that hole or that wanting that was inside me 
was that dream to follow passion, archaeology. And uh, I did it. I left. Lock, stock and barrel. I left the UK and I moved to Egypt. And I would say then that the rest is history, excuse the pun, but... Exact, that is exactly how it was. So had you trained as an archaeologist? No, oh, I, I was an estate agent right. for my sins. <laughs> and a conservative council, it doesn't go well, does it really? Um, but, <laughs> but you saw the light. <laughs> I saw the light. The light was there. Um, there are other components to this. Um, I had a friend actually who, who interviewed me quite off the cuff quite a few months ago and I didn't know he was actually interviewing me until he sent me a copy of the magazine with this interview in there and it had my life story in there and he'd actually written it in a way which I could never tell (laughs) it was so much better (laughs) I thought I want to be that chap Um, but no it all seriousness it was a case of I wasn't trained as an archaeologist I was a surveyor at uh, my estate agency so my forte is actually topographical and that's what I do at Silsila I'm, oh. I'm, I'm in charge of the topographical side of things um, and over the past it's got to be eight years now I have trained not, my, not only myself but I've been trained by professionals in the field um, I'm now very much within accepted within academia itself i represent the academia side is that just within egypt that's within egypt itself and outside of egypt i also represent that because i represent our site silsila gebel el silsila and and so i have a i have a duty there i have a responsibility and when i'm at wonderful conferences like this i get to wear those two hats i get to wear the hat of academics but i also get to wear the hat of what I always want to be and that is the alternative community the alternative sciences and I can go between the two and I feel comfortable in that because I think there is as I've said in my presentation last night that there is a bridge to be made between that gap between the alternative pseudoscience call it what you want and the academic community and that gap seems to be getting larger and larger as the years go past and I don't know, and again, I addressed this issue last night, I don't know if that's the what we call the woohoo factor or whether it's the new age movement and whether that's kind of taking over and being more pronounced because that's what's being seen by the public. And, of course, by, by being seen by the public, it's also being seen by the academic community. Mm. And so because it's being frowned upon, it's becoming much more difficult to get the alternative community listened to and accepted as, a, as plausible scenarios, hypotheses and theories and so forth. And thankfully, I mean, with the BSD, as I was saying last night, again not to blow your trumpet but there seems to be quite a diverse range here and I've seen that over the weekend of different people coming from different backgrounds having different points of view whether that be the woohoo whether that be uh, the healing components whether that be the earth energy components uh, archaeological components and it, it kinds of gels together yet there is some kind of disjointedness there um, but it seems to gel Ooh. it seems to come together um, and speaking with one, some of the wonderful attendees of the conference here, it, it's wonderful to listen to what they've got to say and the way in which they word it. And I can take that back and I can go to other symposiums knowing, well, okay, well, there's a group of guys over there that are doing X, Y, Z, and they're proving X, Y, Z. And that's what I, li- that's what I like to see. I like oh. to see positiveness. I like to see results. Um, we see too much of this 
well, let's go out and see what we can do. And well, it was fine. It was okay. It was brilliant. We had a wonderful time, but they haven't produced anything. Yeah. There's nothing. There's not an end result. Uh, what we see here are end results being proved time and time again. And again, I refer to last night's presentation, and that is that with dowsing, it's one of shall we say England's one of England's traits it's, it's kind of a nice Britishness about it um, it has that uh, euphoric kind of uh, mysticism about it yet it's ingrained within our society everybody knows you say about dowsing oh yeah well my grandfather he used to douse in the field for water or I knew the old man down at the pub he used to take out the hazel stick and find water for me or my grandmother used to douse the women in the local village and tell them what babies whether it was going to be a girl or whether it was going to be a boy you have all these old stories that come out through dowsing um, and yet we don't hear about the other bits like oh I know, man. He, he goes to Saudi Arabia and he douses for oil. Or you've got the shale gas boys. That, that, you know, it's yeah. those kind of things that we don't hear within the public. Uh, and I'd like to change that. I'd like to see more of that. Yeah, wouldn't we all? And I, I think we can. <laughs> yeah. I think we can. I mean, the, the, the wonderful thing with the alternative community, which I think is really in our favour now, and, and also in the favour of the academic community, and they're really using this now, and like yourselves, and that is social networks. Yeah. It really has exploded, and it's allowed people like ourselves, and I hope I can say that, uh, to have a voice and to be heard, but at the same time, in a correct manner and at designated groups. Mm-hmm. We're doing it right now well, on this podcast. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, you, you know myself. I have my own radio show at Interpret yeah. Radio. Yeah. And we cover a multitude of different subjects. And it's wonderful to be able to discuss this in an open forum because it's through discussion that we learn. If we don't discuss things and if we cannot debate things uh, in a sensible manner, whether we agree with it or not, how are we meant to learn from each other? Mm. How are we mm. meant to pass on that knowledge? Mm. You know, we, there are less books being published these days. That's one of the biggest problems we're having. There's less information actually being written. We're seeing a lot more blogs. We're seeing internet pages. And we're seeing electronic, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, digitizing of material. Well, that's fantastic. But at the same time, I find it worrying because we're, we're kind of bringing up a generation that is relying upon the digitization of material yeah. rather than that licking your thumb and paging through the books of a, the pages of a book, sorry, and having that immersion in that knowledge and being able to see it in your mind's eye and visualize it, where instead you're actually just shown an image. Yeah. It's on your it's, it's on your computer. It's on your it's on your iPad. Uh, it's on your your mobile phone now. You could be in the middle of the Belizean jungle, and like someone's post on Facebook. Now, from my perspective, I think that's absolutely amazing. Especially from us at Silsilla, we're able to do our our podcast from Silsilla. We're able to post pictures to our, our people who follow us at Silsilla. We're able to po- post them there and then videos and so forth, uh, and disseminate that information. But it's we've kind of developed a whole generation of armchair explorers and I think that's a little bit sad Hmm. and I think it's worrying at the same time we this generation now our generation we have a responsibility I believe to present material and knowledge and wisdom in a manner in which it's not only 
accepted, understood, and acknowledged, but it motivates. It gets people up. It gets them out of the house. It gets them away from that mobile phone. It gets them away from the iPad. And it gets them into the field. Hmm. And I think that's most important. But it's so difficult to do because uh, everybody wants stuff in bite-sized chunks. So if you're a YouTube video that's longer than three minutes, people don't watch it. If you have a blog post that's longer than one page, you know, people mm-hmm. just like skim it. It's so hard to get it's the, the quality of information out there. But, but then again, there, there you've said it. The yeah. quality of information. And I think this is where we use the digital age to our advantage mm. by using moving images. We, we can use uh, different types of digitization of the material. Presentation is everything. As the old adage, adage says, you, you can't judge a book by its cover. You have to read it yeah. to judge it. The same goes with a podcast or a video, as you quite rightly say. And that is, it's all about the graphics. It's about the presentation. If you make it excuse my words here, if you make it look sexy, all of a sudden it's eye-grabbing. Yeah. If it's boring, mundane, and let's use these words, academic, you, you, you've got a non-audience. They fall asleep on you. Mm. So you, you've got to present it in a manner in which it is exciting, it is motivating, it stimulates, and it gets them going. It makes them think. It makes them discuss. It makes them talk about it. And it's through all that that we can continue to the next level. And we continue and continue and continue it. Mm. Um, how difficult has, was it to uh, get established in, in Egypt uh, doing what you're doing? I was very fortunate. <laughs> I will be honest. I was very fortunate. I was very lucky. Um, I was speaking to a lovely gentleman last night about these things. Mm-hmm. And he actually used a word that was, is quite apt. Uh, and that is that it was coincidence. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't believe in coincidence. Um, I believe in opportunities that present themselves. And when I f- just made that decision to move to Egypt, it was as if a series of doorways opened up for me. And it allowed me to go about what I wanted to do with relative ease, I will be honest. And these opportunities just they just came they just materialized it was as if, as if it was as if the universe was working in my favor and i don't mind saying i was on a, a kind of call it a spiritual journey at the time i was going through a transition myself remember now i was a blue suited hair hair was all greased back i, I was a booted and suited estate agent so my grandmother mm. and uh, i'd gone from that to wearing khakis going barefoot through the temples growing my hair long growing a beard and putting bangles on my arm and feet <laughs> and run at that point i was running around glastonbury mm. during the summer months mm. uh in my volkswagen van and you know with the children running around mm. st- stonehenge and, and hugging trees and oh i was i was way out of control but out of that came a realization that it was a, i i realized i was on some kind of journey but i was learning and I was presented with all these different people along that journey that were able to inspire me. And I looked to them, and I looked to Hamish Miller is one, yeah. a prime example. I met Hamish in Hereford. It was towards the very end before the transition took place. And I met him for a dear friend in Hereford. And we went and stayed uh, a couple of months with Hamish and Barr at their house. And we, we camped out in, in the wooded area by their, by their um, stone circle area. And I built the fire pit that's in the ground there. That's oh, still there right. today. Cool. And we, we lived there. Ooh. And it was wonderful. 
but you know it, it's it's opportunities like that and I've I always said my father taught me this and he said to me John if you ever see an opportunity grab it with both hands don't be limp-wristed about it mm. grab it with both hands and pull it tight to your chest hang on to it and embrace it because sometimes you don't get a second chance and so I always looked at an opportunity and thought I should take it I should grab it or go with this um, intuitively I suppose but I never t- during that transitional stage I never turned anything down so to speak mm. I never turned my back on anything um, I always looked at things with I, I can suppose a child's view you know wide eyed great awe and uh, over the years I've settled and I've settled into a routine I've settled into a, into a position now where I feel as if I've come out the other end um, I, I don't want to sound egotistical but I, I feel as if I've grown as a person and I've been able to now share my experience with not only just my children and my family um, but with my audience as well uh, through the dissemination of knowledge through my books, uh, through our radio through our magazine, Intrepid Magazine uh, through the symposium that I do every year in, in Minneapolis, the Paradigm Symposium um, coming here and sharing my thoughts and ideas and my, my experiences with you great people and it's through those kind of experiences that we can really we can come together a lot of people I've heard a lot of people say about connectiveness you know we're all one and so forth and I think that's true to a certain extent and sometimes it feels a bit new agey to, to kind of agree with that kind of stuff um, but I think there is some efficacy there that if we do all come together and we can share these insights and share our experiences we, we, we do grow we grow inwards and also outwards Hi my name is Sandy Mack short for Mackeran actually and an interesting fact about myself is that I believe dowsing should be taught to every person on the planet, or at least they should have access to know about it and be able to use that. You're listening to Adventures in Dowsing from the British Society of Dowsers. Welcome. Well, what's happening at the BSD? We still have a couple of events uh, before the end of the year, uh, and if you're prompt at listening or downloading this podcast, there's one coming up on Sunday the 26th of October with the Archaeological Dowsing Group, who are going to be walking in the footsteps of our ancestors in the Stonehenge landscape. And they'll be visiting Durrington Walls Henge, Woodhenge, the Cuckoo's Stone, the Cursus, the Avenue, and the Lost Henges. And it's an all-day walking tour of the Stonehenge landscape, so please make sure you have suitable clothing and footwear. And on the 15th of November 2014, the Wellness Group are having a meeting in Tamworth in Arden Village Hall. And speakers include Jazz Bassey, who's talking about spirit release Indian style, Dr. Helen Ford on the power of soul's truth to overcome illness and reinstate happiness and well-being, Vicky Argyle speaking on colour therapy and numerology, and Sean Ferris talking on alchemy, the elements of health. Uh, full details of these events, of course, are available on the BSD website, and they are open to non-members, so uh, be sure to check it out if you're interested in going along. Uh, now let's get back to my talk with uh, Dr. John Ward. Uh, now, there were some aspects of his work that he wasn't too comfortable talking about on the record, as it were, uh, but I asked him, you know, what does it actually feel like to be dowsing in amongst the ancient sites of Egypt? 
most of my dowsing in Egypt um, on the personal side is I mean it's, it's fun stuff I will be honest um, because I, I, I've kind of got uh, it's like a it's like a huge playground <laughs> let's be honest it's a, it's a dowsers playground it really is um, as we say as Egyptologists you know we've only dug up 1% the 99% is still in the ground. Mm. And to be a dowser and to just wander around these sacred sites is just immense because it doesn't matter where you put your dowsing rod, it's picking something up. Um, there, the experiences, as I shared again with you last night and, and the rest of the audience, um, Karnak Temple, dowsing there, the, the great ramps out the front, and seeing the exposure and seeing how um, the results of that dowsing were accepted at the time and then exploited, and they took that further and actually excavated. And then, upon my results of dowsing, they were actually able to see them there for themselves and they couldn't disprove it. Oh. And on the cusp of that, then being invited to go and dow something else, the, the Lost Chapel of Hathor at Luxor, and finding that again. Um, I've also taken dowsing to, to different levels where I've tried to push myself as a dowser going past the what I call the mainstay, the ley lines, energy lines and, and, and all of that. And it, I'm not dis- putting any dispersions out on that. Um, but I've tried to push myself to try and figure out what it actually is we are dowsing. I asked two pertinent questions of the audience last night in my presentation and they are what does it mean to be a dowser? And what is dowsing? And, and really, we don't have the answers to that. We have theories. We have conjecture. Uh, we can. There's all manner of things we can talk about. I'm picking up this and I'm picking up that and so forth. Um, but I like to push it push the limits of my dowsing in Egypt um, and, and one of the greatest experiences was the one at Napton Player which I shared with you last night uh, the concentric circles that turned into a spiral that was a kind of upward vortex um, that was the imagery but the actual experience of, of walking that and just following a rod and you couldn't see it in the photographs but I had my eyes closed and I was just literally just following the rod as it was bending round and I was just kept on following and following and following it and when I finally opened my eyes, I had this perfect spiral oh. inside that, that the, the concentric mounds that are the, the, the burials of the bone vine. And I must admit, it, there was something about that because it wasn't just dowsing. It had gone, it'd gone further. It had gone a step further than dowsing. And I'm not, I don't mean spiritually, and I, I don't want to get into that kind of realm of things, but there was an emotional component to that which I couldn't articulate. And it's something, even though I said to the audience last night, I cannot articulate what it was I was feeling. All I can say to you is that it is, it's at the top one. It's Mm. it's not the top ten, it's the number one experience. It was euphoric. I left that feeling empowered, as if I could take on the world and douse anywhere. And it it was the pinnacle for me of dowsing that particular experience and then from there it, it's it's been a, one hell of a ride as you said yourself tonight Ooh. in your own speech uh, and it, f- I love to share this and share these experiences with people because the, you do you still have people come up to you you'd be there at a site and you'd be dowsing and they say oh yeah well I knew my mate he used to douse and yeah he used to look for water he used to work for British Gas and they used to bring and you get those kind of people and, and then you get other people come and say oh what are you doing? And 
you kind of said, well, here, take the rods. Yeah. And you let them experience it. I remember taking my father, and it was the first time he came to Egypt to visit me. And we were at Medina Habu. And I took him to the site that I was dowsing, which was the palace of Amenhotep III. And I knew what was there, and I'd been dowsing at all. I said, Dad, I said, here, Dad, try this dowsing. He said, oh, I do. he's from South East London. He said, oh, I ain't doing any of that, son. Oh, good, no, 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 it's witchcraft, that is. I said, no, 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 I said, have a go, Dad. You're going you're gonna to really enjoy this. And he grabbed the rods, and immediately he walked, and he, he'd brought a friend with him, and I forget his name at the moment. Hank or Frank or something he came with him and he's standing there laughing he had this trilby hat on typical Londoner and all of a sudden the rod started moving from my dad and he literally just threw them up in the air <laughs> and he said I'm not having any of this my boy <laughs> he, he left the site and went to the cafeteria the restaurant on the outside the, the, the site and he refused point blank to come back he said no I ain't touching it it reminds me of your mother Bloody witchcraft, that is. That's witchcraft. <laughs> and, but it was wonderful to see his reaction because the actual rods did move. They moved for him. Of course they did. Mm. You know, because as I was trying to emulate today in, in the workshop, you know, we, we are a biological machine that emits EMF continually. And we are interacting either consciously or subconsciously or, as I like to put it as well, sub-subconsciously. It's a little bit of a Jungian there. Um with our environment and our environment is made up of so much EMF now from mobiles to wireless to radar to uh, telecommunications and so forth but when you get into a site in Egypt especially in the, out in the Saharan desert and you're out there and there is nothing mm. no interfering signals at all nothing yeah. and you pick your rods up and they start dancing for you and they, they do they dance mm. And it's a dance between you and your rods. And what you're dancing with is your environment around you. Mm. But you're dancing with... And I, I don't want to... I'm using this as a metaphor now. You're dancing with the spirits of thousands of years. Mm. And this tango just takes place. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, I'm actually... What I'm saying this to you, I'm reminiscing about a, a, an actual experience at a place called Dabba Dib, uh, which is just outside the cargo oasis. Uh, it's a five and a half hour drive into the desert itself. Once you're out there, you're out there. Um, because it takes half a day to get there and then you can't travel back at night. So it's, 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 you have to spend the night there. And it's, it's one of these kind of lost cities. And it's, it's all there preserved for you. These beautiful mud brick uh, fortresses and houses, the streets, the agriculture, the manoirs which carried the water from the, from the mountain down into the village for the agriculture and the irrigation and so forth. And it's all preserved to this very day, still in the desert. No one ever goes there. Tourists don't go there. Oh. It, it's just us guys. Mad, mad Englishmen in the midday sun. Uh, but you can walk along the streets... And, I, and I've done it many times because I used to go there for, I still do go there for my New Year's Eve party. It's just me and Maria. And we have the whole place to ourselves in the middle of the desert. It's absolutely a dream. It's beautiful. And we go with our Bedouin friends. And uh, I'll walk along the streets with my dowsing rods. And the rods are just, they are doing this tango with me because they're tangoing with the echoes of the past. Oh. And I know that sounds quite lame. And. But it is. That's the only way I can put it into words. It's like echoes of the past. It's like walking in the footsteps of the, of the greats, like Herodotus and Strabo, um, the armies of Cambyses, 
that you know were lost in the desert you know you're walking amongst ancestors that we can see their faces we know how they lived we know how they ate we know how they died and yet the streets are still there their houses are still there you walk into these little vaulted rooms and the the bread oven is still in the corner the mud floor is exactly the same as they left it and it's all preserved and the pottery is around the place and so you've got all this archaeological remnants around you which is physical and you can see it and you can interact with that but on a different level it's as if the streets come alive and they're following you and that's again that's, that's just another whole experience that I, that I can share with you it's wonderful mm. well this amazed me about Egypt I mean I've only visited once and uh, as I said to you I wasn't uh, really drawn to it until la- um, yeah. later life um, but I was just amazed that there's so much stuff that's still turning up there's still so much stuff there oh it's phenomenal yeah you know, and you think well you know we've been investigating it for like a few hundred years now you know, how come there's still so much stuff to find? <laughs> you know well, the I sand mean, is everywhere. The but as we, just, yeah. well, that, well, as we say, yeah. you know, we, we've literally only uncovered 1%. Yeah. 99% is still in the stand. Yeah, yeah. Um, as I tried to, again, I showed in the presentation last night, Luxor Temple, up until the late 19th century, it was buried oh. to its roof. Um, and what a lot of people don't realize is that the outer wall or the, the enclosure wall of Luxor Temple is Roman. Mm. Now, put that into context now. The Roman Empire finished around about four to five hundred A.D. That's you're talking about twelve, thirteen hundred years yeah. for an entire temple complex to be buried to its roof, Ooh. and then the, the the Muslims to come in and actually build a mosque on the roof because that is the level at which ground level is. Yeah, and so put that in the context now. How much else is buried? Um, when we look at the delta, the northern part of Egypt, uh, we can see the sediment levels are so high from the inundation of the Nile before the, the rise of the Aswan Dam in 1971. And so we know there's so much buried out there. Um, it's just getting to it. Mm-hmm. Remember that most of the population of Egypt lives on the banks of the Nile. That hasn't changed in over 5,000 years. Yeah. And so where we see these, these huge sprawling cities, what we've got to remember is underneath those sprawling cities are the ancient sprawling cities. And so when somebody builds a house and they take down their mud brick and they put the foundations in for a concrete structure, they hit archaeological material. Yeah. Um, and so we're forever finding stuff, forever discovering new temples. A new temple has only just been discovered in Aswan, in the middle of the city. The temple to Ptah, I think it's Ptah or is it Hathor? Or is Isis? <laughs> Got me on that. I think it's Isis. Um, uh, but that was just found recently. Uh, uh, and it was buried, believe it or not, under rubbish. What? Not hardcore, not, not stone, but actual physical rubbish Ooh. thrown out from the houses um, by the people who lived there. And they just literally buried this paganistic temple under rubbish. And so we've now sifted through the rubbish, which in itself is an archaeological record, to discover this pristine, amazing temple. But Wafer is covered in graffiti from travellers and nomads that were travelling through Aswan at the end of the Roman Empire. 
So when they were still traveling through Aswan, using the cataract system to go into Ethiopia and Sudan and so forth on the trade routes, they were leaving. They were staying in this temple for shelter, Ooh. and they were putting their marks there. And we have the slave marks where the slavers were bringing the slaves through, and they were reminiscing and drawing pictographs of giraffe and so forth, their homelands. And so we've got this archaeological record that isn't just the rubbish. It's not just the pottery and the artifacts that lay around within the, the vicinity. It's not just the actual temple itself, the, the architecture of it and who it was dedicated to, Isis and so forth, and what function that served within Aswan as the old city. But we've also got this now this historical record of these travellers who've, who've used the place as shelter and used the place possibly as a place of worship to their own deities changing its original function from a, a place of worship for Isis to a place of worship to whoever their god may be. Mm. Um, and then we can put that into context and look at, say, Philae in Aswan, which was the last temple to close in Egypt. And up until that point, it was still a paganistic temple when everybody else was Christianized. And I forget the name of the emperor now, I do apologize, I think it was 600-something uh, AD when the decree came through from Rome to close this Philae temple. And the last tribe to be using it were the Blemies. And the Blemies, I don't know if you know this, but in, in medieval England, the Blemies were depicted as having no heads. And their faces were on their chest. Ooh. And there are some wonderful medieval maps with the Blemies depicted around the circumference of the map, where you have the women uncladded and you have the men uncladded but they're both holding clubs but they've got no heads and and the, the facial features are on the chest and these guys were still practicing a paganistic ritual at Philae they were taking what they called their shrine to the temple worshipping it having a festival and then leaving once a year and they were allowed to do this um, and then along come the emperor he closed the temple down and changed it to Christian they turned Isis into Mary and so all of a sudden you have this wonderful, the last remnants of the ancient Egyptian religion that had lasted 5,000 years stopped oh. overnight. And it became a very monastic, a place of pilgrimage. And we see the Christians taking, well, the Coptics at that point, well, it was Christian actually, taking over that point. And it, it's, it's just wonderful when you really get into to Egyptian history. It's not just about the pharaohs. It's not just about Tutankhamun. It's not about Anubis and Horus and so forth. There is so much to learn there about the real people the real Egyptians, the, the normal people, what they ate, what they worshipped, how they worshipped, how did they live. They had their worries, the same as we have worries today. They were very much a, very much a family-orientated people. And again, I, I draw back to my dowsing, and I go back to that, that impression I had at Dabba Dib in the, in the Western Sahara Desert, where I'm walking along and I have that tango with those echoes of the past. Because that's where you, you can have contact. And I... To me, that's that's everything. Wouldn't change it for a world. I can uh, see why so many uh, uh, people go out there to start studying Egypt and end up spending the rest of their lives there. So yeah, yeah, you seem to be very happy doing. What you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I, there's a lot of people who have said this to me, Grant, and yeah. and they say, John, you are living the dream. Yeah, and I say to them, I am living my dream. I'm blessed. I I'm very very grateful. I'm I thank the universe every day for the opportunities they give us. Um, but I say, also, I've created my own prison mm. because I, I know I can I can never leave, mm. and that is it's not a drawback. It's something that I'm aware of 
and even though I've made all these huge sacrifices in my life to be where I am today and I, I do get a lot of ridicule and, and so forth but I've made those sacrifices I've made my bed as my mum used to say you make your bed and you will lay in it and I have and it's a very comfortable bed hmm. and I love it and I don't think I'm ever going to leave it I will be honest <laughs> <laughs> Now, you do uh, run to trips and tours, don't you? Yes, yes, yes. Tell us a bit about uh, that. Yeah, I do the Exodus reality tours with my cohort, Scotty Roberts, from America. Uh, we co-authored the book, The Exodus Reality, which was a, a, a multitude of sins, shall we say. <laughs> uh, Scotty came in it from a more biblical point of view. I came in it with a more... Uh, I've coined... The, they, they've given me a kind of nickname in America. They say, oh, it's John. He's the biblical minimalist. <laughs> <laughs> because I kind of throw the Bible out of the window and start again. Um, but no, we, we wrote the book. Uh, Scotty has his version of who he thinks Moses was. That was Senemut, the high vizier of Hatshepsut. I have my version. I believe it was Amenhotep, son of Hapu, the great vizier, and deified as a god by the Ptolemies. Um, and then we take the actual Moses, the actual biblical story, and we put the three together. Mm. And we investigate all the very different scenarios within our book. And we also investigate the faith issue and, and, and everything else. And, and we, but we don't try, we try, it's not a biblical Sunday group, let's put it that way. It's, it's, it's not Sunday school. Um, so we, we take that approach. And then out of that, Scotty came over to do the research with the book, and I took him having first-hand knowledge of course I took him across the whole of Egypt and I showed him everything that pertained to his theory I showed him everything that pertained to my theory but I also showed him everything that pertained to the biblical theory that I could possibly show him so we took an exodus of our own in reality uh, sorry exodus reality sorry about the pun there that wasn't intended honestly I promise you that that was not intended um, but we started in Cairo so we looked at the history of Cairo, the pyramids, of course, and the Sphinx and so forth. But then we, we traveled through the marshlands and we traveled across into the Sinai. We climbed the, the Temple Mount of Serabit el-Khadim, where the, the great temple is today, which we believe was the, tem the temple of God, uh, the mountain of God, sorry, where Moses, in inverted commas, climbed and received the word of God. For me, Mo, uh, Hapu went out there and he wrote down the moral code of the Egyptians, which is written in the uh, pure uh, papyri in Leiden and Scotty believed that sediment went up there we, 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 don't, we forget about Scotty and, uh, <laughs> but then we, we, we travelled down to Luxor and then we travelled to the Aswan and we, we did the whole lot um, and we, 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 we published the book and we got the book out and we were in America and we, we did the launch and someone turned around to us and I can't remember who it was now, some chap he turned around to us and said gee I, I wish I could have come with you and I said well what's stopping you and he said well nothing I said, well, why don't you come? Uh, let me know. I, I'll show you around personally. And uh, one thing led to another. And before I knew it, me and Scotty had devised this entire two-week tour kind of adventure that retraced our footsteps in the footsteps of Moses. And we had these groups coming. And we took up, we, did, we retraced, basically retraced our steps. And we did it in such a way in which it beat every other tourist group that was out there because one I had first hand knowledge of all the sites so I had all the people in the know use my contacts there um, so we had new Egyptologists every day each site we went to we had a new Egyptologist and they would guide us through the site they would tell us exactly what was needed and what wasn't needed and so forth and then we'd have discussions um, 
And but then also another chap came on, and that was Chris Conway, the Scottish medium, and he joined us, and so he he brought in a paranormal aspect that we hadn't even thought about. And so we had this paranormal aspect. We had me and Scotty talking about Moses and Jesus and, and the biblical stuff. Then we had the Egyptologist talking about the history of the biblical history of Egypt and how that kind of related, but how there wasn't actually any archaeological evidence for that and so forth, as well as enjoying the company of the Bedouins, sleeping under the stars at Sarabit al Khadim, the place where the Hebrews would have, if it happened, where they would have camped out. There we were on, under the stars with the Bedouins themselves. Oh in their tents as their guests of the Sheikh um, Sheikh Barakat wonderful old man and uh, it, the whole thing was just turned around most people go on cruise boats these, these diesel run black things that are going up and down the Nile at X amount of knots oh, guilty yeah, sorry Graham <laughs> um, but we, we dispensed that we took the old Dahabir mm. the old 1900s sailing boat mm. and, and we, we, we just coasted gently down the Nile stopping at sites that the cruise boats can't stop at because mm. they can't moor on the banks mm. but our boat could so we got out of places which no one ever visited and because I know they're there as well and so I arranged for our drivers to be there I arranged for a picnic um, on the top of Serapid al nobody knew not even Scotty knew and my guy little Mo he's a, my right hand man he's my brother he's an amazing man um, I uh, arranged with little Mo and Shahad prior to everybody climbing up Sarah Bid Al-Kadim to take up all the table and chairs, bone china, silverware, and they on the backs of camels with the Bedouin. And they took it all up there and they set it all up. But not only did they do that, so we had cucumber sandwiches, believe it or not, <laughs> cucumber sandwiches with kebabs, and it served, <laughs> served on china on these tables and chairs with white linen tablecloths. But he'd also taken, he'd, he'd had made it, which I didn't know, he had made in Cairo these huge banners with Exodus reality play. and he placed them on top of the hilltops so they were huge things and you climb up and you think seriously does that say Exodus reality up there and I didn't know Mo had done that and we got up to the top and there it was in full splendour in the middle of the temple we had this most glorious silver service Edwardian colonial dinner and it was amazing and the Bedouins were walking around and they were joining in and everywhere had such a fantastic time and that's what makes us different from the other tour groups. I Sounds think. amazing. I want to come and do that. <laughs> <laughs> anytime, anytime. Um, but we, I, I will be honest, and I don't mind saying this, um, we have been affected, of course, this year by all the troubles that are happening, mm. not in Egypt, because I, I was stressed that, not in Egypt, um, but mostly the, the, the negative press that's going on with Syria and so forth and, and the, 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 the war between Israel and Palestine. That has had a negative effect, but uh, we're looking forward to February. Uh, February next year is going to be fantastic. Uh, we're actually going to do the canvas trip in February. So we're going to start in Cairo. We're going to go to Alexandria, do Alexandria. Then we're going to camp out at Tapasiris Magna, the place where they believe that Cleopatra and Mark Antony are buried. Uh, camp out at the stars there. Then we're going to go for the war memorials from the Second World War. Then we're going to do a kind of dogleg left and follow the trade route of Alexander the Great when he went to Siwa to see the, the oracle of Jupiter and receive his, his oracle that he was going to be the next pharaoh. And we're going to go there, and then we're going to camp out there, and then from there we're going to travel across the Western Sahara Desert with my Bedouin friends. Mm. And that's going to be 14 days through the desert. So we're going to be Bahir, 
Dakhla, Farafra, the White Desert, the Black Desert. We're going to go to all the forts, these lost cities that are just literally in the middle of nowhere in the oases. And then we're going to cut across to Luxor and do Luxor, Karnak, Valley of the Kings and so forth. And then from there, back to Cairo and then fly home. So February is going to be an amazing trip. Fantastic. John, uh, quickly tell us how people can get in touch with you to find out about The best that. way to get hold of me is Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> you know the the day of the email is dead really isn't it yeah. uh, Facebook is the best place just Google Google John Ward Dr. John Ward you'll find me uh, I do have a website www.exodusreality.com very easy great John it's been fantastic talking to it's you it's been, been fantastic, fantastic meeting up with you this weekend so. I, thank you so much I really have appreciated it been, again a wonderful crowd yeah great thanks well, we'll leave it there. Uh, my thanks to Dr. John Ward once again for all that very entertaining chat, and it was great having him come along to conference, uh, especially as his uh, daughter Freya was due to be born the day before conference, but had the good grace to arrive a few weeks prematurely, so that John was free to attend. So many congratulations to uh, John and Maria and uh, their daughter Freya. Adventures in Dowsing comes from the British Society of Dowsers in Hanley Swan, England. For more details about the society, have a look at our website at britishdowsers.org. You can also check out our Dowsing Forum and find us on Facebook, YouTube and even Twitter. If you want to get in touch with the show about anything, you can send an email to podcast at adventuresindowsing.com or you can leave a comment on particular episodes on the website at adventuresindowsing.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a good review on iTunes. So, thanks once again for listening. Many thanks to Hilary Brooks, Ian Pegler, and Not For Pussies for the music. And be sure to join me next time for more Adventures in Dowsing. Mm-hmm.